<clears throat> Thank you, Brandon, for that prayer. We are turning our attentions again to the book of Romans. And um, today we start a new section. It's uh, verse 18 of chapter 1 to the end of the chapter, verse 32. So let me read that for you. And I'll pray first. Dear God, I ask your power to be felt, your presence and to be known to all of us, Lord, as we hear your voice today, that we trust. We trust that this is your word to us, that it has been breathed out by you, exhaled by you, given to us. Every word that we have, Lord, is from you. There are no wasted words in your word. We realize, Lord, that uh, based upon our doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, that uh, these are the very words that you desire for us to have. And there are those things in here, Lord, that we don't necessarily always understand. But your word tells us that there are mysteries and there are difficult things, and there are ideas that are portrayed in your word and given to us and taught to us that sometimes are perplexing, but yet, Lord, uh, and we do not know how they, how they uh, will all come to fruition, but we know that they will. We know that you are in control. We know that you are a good God. We know that you are a just God, a righteous God, a merciful, compassionate God, a forgiving God. We thank you for sending us Christ. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to, to the Father, that uh, by your obedience we now have perfect standing with you, dear Father, because of your work both of your death upon the cross and your obedience to the entire word of the law. And so, Lord, as we read these things today, we realize that it's all about you. That this is, book is about you. Giving our life to Christ means that we no longer live. Our life is all about you. And as we confess today, Lord, we realize that we know that that is not possible for us to maintain, but that you've turned our hearts toward you, that you have given us the desire that you've put upon our heart to love you and to glorify you and to honor you and to acknowledge you in our life, Lord. That's a gift. We thank you for that. So I pray that as we read this section of your word today, that we realize that it is for our benefit, but for your glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And, like, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. May the Lord be blessed by the reading of his word this morning. And I don't know about you, but every time I read that passage, I say, wow. Um, how uh, amazing that passage is to us. I'm going to read something uh, you don't need to turn there. It's just from uh, Isaiah 46. And it's talking about the righteousness of God. And if you want to look it up later on, it's 46 verses 12 and 13. He says there, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, and you, and you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off, and my salvation will not delay, and I will put salvation in Zion for Israel is my glory. Uh, one of my uh, comment, uh, favorite commentators wrote this about this passage. It says that, notice it says that uh, who are far from righteousness, far from the conformity to the will, the character, the purposes of the Lord, and he will implement his righteousness, all that accords with his will, his character, and purposes, everything that is right with God. And so that's a definition, as you hear, about the righteousness of God. But notice again, as we looked at Psalm 51 last, I'm sorry, Isaiah 51 last week and Psalm 98, we saw that parallel to one another, close to one, relationship with one another is righteousness and salvation. So what God is giving to us and revealing to us in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, it's talking about the power of God to salvation, as he says in verse 16. So we need to see how that all ties in together. And again, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Very focused. Giving out a clarion call to all people, but yet, those who it affects are very small to only those who believe, to everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness, the salvation of God, the character of God, the will of God, the purposes of God, as this commentator writes, the right thing from God, expecting God to do the right thing, is very important as we read the verses today that we trust that God is doing the right thing because God is just and God is right and God is good. So we need to make sure that the confession of our faith and understanding our theology of who God is is so important because remember Romans 8, 28, when we go back all the way back through Lamentations and talked about the confession of our faith and we realize that we have to in, in, in uh, view of and experiencing all of the terrible things that Romans tells us, Romans 8 tells us, of all the experiences of near death, even death itself, Nothing, no calamity, disaster can separate us from the love of Christ. Why? Because of who God is. Because of his character. He says if he's given us Christ, hasn't he given us all things that we need? So we need to believe that God is right. And he is righteous and that he will do the right thing. And so for doing the right thing, he is talking about today. And he talks about here in the rest of this book for several Verses and chapters, 
he talks about the righteousness of God. This God about who has uh, a God who is now exhibiting and now revealing in a very present tense way. He is revealing his wrath, his anger, because he is holy. That he responds to it. He's not sitting there getting more and more angrier. He isn't, he isn't remember he, we talked about this, he is, he is not a God who is, who is led by passions. It doesn't just build up to it blows up. He doesn't get like you and me that we just, you know, we hold it down, hold it down, and pop a cork, and we're gone. And we start, we start our wrath goes uh, spewing all over the place, uncontrolled. No matter how much we think we are righteous in our anger, it's not as righteous as we think many times. Sometimes we do get it right. But God gets it right all the time, and especially as he's trying to teach the, the folks that he's writing to in the church of Rome that he's not met. He wants to make sure that everybody understands the gospel. And that's why he takes great lengths in the very beginning part of chapter 1. He talks about who is this gospel? It's about Jesus. And who's Jesus? He's the one who's been told about from the beginning. And he's the one who came and, and now by the power of the resurrection is proclaimed to be Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Redeemer, the Savior, the Messiah. And he is the one who's going to save us from our sins. And he is the one who is the object of our faith. He is the reason why we can stand right before God. He is the one and the reason why we are now justified by faith. We, as I said last week, and we're going to be looking at this for sermons to come, is justification by faith, meaning that it is a legal declaration of our standing with God. Legal declaration of our standing with God. We are now rightly aligned with God. We are justified with God. We now have a relationship with God that we could not have before because of sin. And so he's going, going to now describe what unrighteousness looks like. Because remember how Martin Luther read, and he said when I read his comments about verses 16 and 17, he says, it was so remarkable, it was like I was entering paradise and being born again. Well, if I read verses 16 and 17, i got to tell you, those are interesting, but it didn't, you know, it didn't rock me until I understand what the bad news is and what he understood realizing that God is just, and if he's just, he's going to judge. He has to judge. He's a holy God. We want a judge to do what is right, and that is to punish sin or punish transgressions, those who break the law. And so that's what scared the pants off of Martin Luther. Oh no, this God is just. I'm a miserable sinner. How am I going to be, how am I going to be right with God? And that's when he said, when he understood the greatness of this gospel, which is the power of God and salvation, he is saying that, oh wow, God, I don't have faith, but God gave me faith. And because of this gift of faith, I now have been given the understanding and, the, and, the, and this great gift of salvation in Christ. And now he is the object of my faith. Those who, have, who are righteous, those who are justified by faith, shall live by their faith, meaning their faith has an object, and the object is Christ. And so that's what he is going to be describing here. And this passage is really kind of a continuity of, even though we have a breaking down of passages here, you realize it's because I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is, why? Because it is the power of God uh, for salvation to everyone believed, to the Jew first and to the Greek, because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And now we see the word for there. And we see now that there is another term there for being revealed. So he's carrying over this idea of revelation of God and the reasons why he wants to, as he says, verse 15, this is why I'm eager to go and preach to you in Rome. And it all started with that. All of this leads up because he's eager, because... I know 
And I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I understand what the gospel is and I want you to understand that. And that's what we do every week. This is why we do it every time we catechize and we teach and we open the word of God is that we understand the gospel. Because we all have a paradigm about understanding the Bible and understanding who Jesus is. And you've heard me say that the only Jesus that disappoints us is the Jesus we create, not the Jesus of the Bible and the God of the Bible. And so there's a paradigm. And in my own life, I can hear my paradigm crack from time to time. And I can feel it shifting as when the cold weather gets really cold and you hear your house shift and crack. That's what my paradigm, my model, my framework of my faith. And I feel pretty confident at many times, but as the, as the Reformation told us, that as believers, we are always reforming because we don't totally understand everything there is about God. And the more God reveals himself to us, and the more the Holy Spirit illumines us to that, that's where we find ourselves shifting and creaking and realizing, wow, this needs to be supported, or this shouldn't be here, or maybe it's, it needs to be shifted around a little bit on, on, uh, uh, manually and not by the shifting of the error of my thinking. So that's what he says in his first part here, verses 18 to 23. Notice he says, because of the wrath of the wrath of God is being revealed. And again, it's this, this present tense. It's not something will be revealed or has been revealed. God is continually revealing his wrath from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their righteous, uh, righteousness suppress the truth because what can be known about God is plain to them because for his Invisible attributes, his internal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived because although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God. To me, that's key. A summary verse or a summary section or a thesis statement is that it's that right there. Exchanging the truth, exchanging the glory of God has consequences. And that is why the wrath of God is being revealed. Now, he's revealed to us his righteousness in Christ. So why do we need that? So that we understand that God has continually been revealing his wrath his anger toward unrighteousness and ungodliness. And what is ungodliness and unrighteousness? Let's turn to Exodus chapter 20. Anybody understands that when we get to Exodus chapter 20, that's where the Ten Commandments are. Haven't read the Ten Commandments in a while. So what does he say? Very first part of the Ten Commandments. And God spoke to all these things. Chapter 20 of Exodus. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not name, you take the name of the Lord your God in an empty, meaningless, pointless manner. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all the work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. You, your son, and your daughter, your male servant, 
your female servant, your livestock, or your sojourner who is in within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in it, in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord God blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. That's godliness. And what is godliness? It is understanding and having a right relationship with God. That's the very first part of the Ten Commandments. Our relationship with God. We break one of those, we break everything. Because we may not kill somebody physically. We could say, oh, I feel pretty good. You know, I haven't, I haven't stolen anything lately. So we can justify ourselves for what we think we can cover on the, on the last six commandments, but the first four, it's impossible for us to keep. That's why we trust in Christ, because he perfectly kept them. And because of his death on the cross, we are now right with God. It is as if we have never broken any of these. We are in good standing with him, and legally now, we are right with him. We are justified by our faith. That's ungodliness. Ungodliness is that as he says in verse 23, they've suppressed the truth and exchanged the glory. And the word glory in the Old Testament is the word kavod, which means weight. And they exchanged the weight of God, the weightiness of God, for the weight of something else or someone else in their life and in my life. When I sin against God, I make God light. And I make my passions heavier and carry more weight in my life. I'm justified for my anger. I'm justified for my appetites. I'm justified for what I want to see and what I want to eat and what I want to look at and what I want to say. I'm justified. There God becomes weightless and I become weighty. So now what does that look like? Back to Exodus. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land and that your God is give, that your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife. House, excuse me. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife Male servant, female servant, ox, his donkey, anything that's your neighbor's, anything that's in his garage, you don't want to covet. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes and lightning and the the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and the people were afraid and trembled and they were stood off, and they didn't want God to speak. He said to Moses, speak to us, we will listen, but don't let God speak to us, or we're going to die. So we see the second part of the Word of God, the second part of the Ten Commandments, the last six, is unrighteousness. It's doing the wrong thing based upon our wrong relationship with God. Ungodliness, broken relationship with God, leads to unrighteousness. This is what we've said, uh, orthodoxy, right teaching, leads to orthopraxy, right living. And that's what the Ten Commandments, a relationship with God. I'm the only God there is. Don't don't misuse me. Don't mischaracterize me. Don't give anything else for anybody to worship. Honor me. The day I set aside, do not break it. I want you to understand that that's the day that I set aside for you to rest and understand that you've been justified by faith, that you've been made right, because I'm a righteous God, and as Hebrew, at the Exodus 34 that Brandon's teaching on, he is saying all these wonderful things about who God is, but what does he say? Oh, but don't forget. I don't let those who are guilty off lightly. I don't let them off at all. So that's where he goes, and we go back to Romans. This is why the wrath of God is constantly being revealed from heaven against all all ungodliness. There's no excuse for our ungodliness and unrighteousness. So we see our relationship with God has been broken. What separates us from God? Our sin. Why? 
Because we take God and displace him with something else or someone else. That's what he is saying here, that the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, by their unrighteousness, because of their ungodliness, are now constantly suppressing the truth. That's what that word is. It's a continuous action. They are constantly sitting on a suitcase that is overfilled, and you keep on sitting on it because you're trying to buckle it, and it just won't buckle, so you're pushing, and you're pushing, and you're pushing. And that's what we do all of our lives is push until we come to know Christ. And it's not to say that we don't stop pushing because we don't follow the law and we don't follow Christ and we don't love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, mind, strength every moment of every day. But that's what he is saying, that because of ungodliness, our broken relationship with God, back to Genesis 3, and that's why I had that read today. Genesis 3 brings us back, defines for us the entire Bible. It brings to us again our understanding of this, this why we are in the way that we're in. And we go back to Genesis 3 at that garden. It's a lie. It's all about believing fake news. It's all about believing conspiracies. It's all about believing all of the stuff that we've been inundated with, no matter what side of the fence we find ourselves in our day and age from a political perspective, there's a lot of junk and a lot of lies. And many of us are sucking it up. And this is what goes on in our life, is that Satan in that garden, in the garden where everything was beautiful, and easy. And they were walking the cool of the day with the Lord. They were in perfect harmony with God. It all fell apart. Why? Because they exchanged the weightiness of God for a lie from a serpent. So he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his inv invisible attributes, namely internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Where? In, nat in nature, in natural revelation, in general revelation it's called. Heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. Day by day, night by night, they pour forth speech, declaring the glory of God. People can't say that they don't know. No matter where they are, how that happens, I do not know. In places that are so obscure to all humanity, I have no idea how that's going to work out, but I trust that God has made it plain to them because his word has said so. Do I believe that God is good? Yes. Do I believe that God is just? Yes. Do I believe that God is, is um, uh, uh, righteous, that he will do the right things? Yes. How he judges people, I have no idea how he'll do it, but his word says that they're without excuse. So I trust in who God is and how he's revealed himself to me to not worry about that. But he says that they are without excuse. So people can't say, I never knew. Verse 20 says, so they are without excuse. And for what they knew, they knew their understanding of who God is. For what they knew, they did not honor. ESV says honor. NSB, NASB, King James says they, uh, they did not, the root word there is glorify. They did not glorify him. Nor did they give him thanks. That's why the wrath of God is coming. It's not because of all the ugly things that we've read. It's not because of those. That's the unrighteousness because of the ungodliness. And yes, 
He says those who practice them will be judged. But it's not about doing those things. It's the reason why they do those things is because they've been separated from God. And that's what they've done. They've ex- they have suppressed an exchange, this great exchange that they've done. And that's what he talks about in the following verses, verses uh, 24 on to 31. Notice he says in verse 21, For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, or give thanks to him, but became empty, vain, useless in their thinking. Remember, vanity upon vanities in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's all vapor, it's all meaningless, it's all frustrating, it's all futile. And that's what he is saying here. He says their thinking became that. And that's, if you turn with me to Romans 8, 20, uh, beginning of 8, chapter 8, it talks about creation. Verse 20 of Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to futility. That it, is, it can never complete what it was supposed to complete because of sin. Because of its inability to do everything it does. Things start dying. Things start falling about. Things become fruitless. Genesis 3 tells us about the curse. You're going to work your brains off and the weeds are still going to come back. And you're going to continue to work and your work is never going to be complete. It's going to be a rat race. You're going to be in a constant turnstile working and working and working. And creation is bound to futility because God has subjected to it so that we do not depend upon ourselves. That's why he did it. That's why it says in Romans 8.20, God subjected it to futility so that we don't get so big in our pants and thinking that we're great. And our heads don't blow up. That's why God subjected it to futility. And so that's what's going on here, is that everything became futile. Our thinking became futile. And therefore, our hearts were foolish, and we became darkened. And if the light that we look at, as Jesus says, if that's really light and it's really darkness, can you imagine how dark it really is? And so people who feel themselves enlightened, right? Enlightened by telling us the problems of the world. And if we only did this for this group, and if we only did this for this group, and we only gave this to this group, and we only gave that to this group, and if we only treated this group this way, it would all go away. It would all be different. Because they're so enlightened. But yet they've forgot about God. They've exchanged the very wait for God for the weightiness of faith in humanity. And what Paul is doing here is what's done in other places is that God is taking and pulling the rug out for any faith that you have in humanity at all. And we'll go there quickly. Let's go to chapter 3. Where is he going with all this? It's gonna be, it will be a few weeks or, well, a few many sermons after this point. But verse 10, taken from many, many passages in the Old Testament. Verse 10 of chapter 3. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All is turned aside, together they became worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. Their throat is open grave, they use their tongues for deceit. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's where Paul is getting to. He wants to make a blanket statement from saying this is all humanity. Now, right now he seems to be talking to Gentiles. But it's still applicable to everyone. He's going to go to the Jews in the next chapter. And he's going to go to them and 
confront them about their self-righteousness because they are Jews. Because they think they have a leg up on others. Because they're so religious. As I once did in my life, being a faithful churchgoer, my young adult life, thinking that I've pitied other people who weren't. Not because of who God is, not because of the work of Christ, is because what a good boy am I? So their hearts became darkened, their thinking became futile. They claimed to be wise, but were really fools. You don't have to go there, but I'm going to go there. Pastor Nate gave a message about Nebuchadnezzar. And what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He thought he was so great that God turned him into an animal or acting like an animal. With it, he says, O Nebuchadnezzar, the king has departed from you. You shall be driven among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and for seven periods of time shall pass over until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar and driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of the heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird claws. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised him and glorified him. That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He glorified God. He gave God weight rather than Nebuchadnezzar having weight. And he says, for his dominion is everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and, and among the uh, inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Because now he trusts in the weightiness of God. This is what's happening here. Nebuchadnezzar became a fool. He acted like an animal. All he did was scratch and sniff. We're creating the image of God. We're the apex of creation. We don't scratch and sniff. Why? Because verse 23 tells us, exchange the weight of God, of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. So what is he talking about here? Idolatry. When we exchange who's on the pedestal of our life, we then are become an idol factory, as Calvin says. We, we make our own idols. We put ourselves up there. We put our, des our, our desires, our passions, our lusts. We put our work, we put our, our hearts, we put our bodies, we put our families, we put our money, we put our jobs. We put everything, our recreations, everything on a pedestal. We find so many ways. We are so creative. God has made us creative, and we've been creative in the wrong ways by finding things to put in the weight place of our life rather than God. So notice this idolatry. And the Bible talks about idolatry everywhere. And then he says in verse 24, For this reason, therefore, because they've exchanged the glory and the weight of God, for this reason, I'm going to tell you, this, this, this passage I could preach five sermons on, but I decided to go with the express train rather than the local train I've talked about. You know, this is like, you see those commercials? If you've seen any of those people, they sell mattresses, and it comes to your house in a box this big, and it's all squeezed, and all of a sudden you cut it, and all of a sudden out, out of this box comes this gigantic queen, king-size mattress. That's what's going on here. You just slit it, and it just goes... <laughs> just, there's just so much here, but... I want you to get the flow. I don't, want to be, I don't want to be bogged down by 
the details that are good to talk about, but I want to give you the flow of the book of Romans. I want to give you the flow of why he is talking about sin and judgment and wrath. Because if he didn't, we would not know what goodness is and righteousness is and justification by faith is. And so he says, therefore God gave them up. That first exchange. He then gives them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So now their senses, their sensuality, now is overtaking their life. Why? Because there's nothing governing their life but the idol that's bringing this sensuality on. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies, taking away the dignity of the body that God gave us, and they're using it for themselves. Because, verse 25, they've exchanged that truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than the, the creature rather than the creator. And here we have another exchange. For this reason, God gave them up. God gave them up. God says, you want it, you got it. God doesn't resist. God does not hold back the resistance. He doesn't stop them from sinning. In fact, he allows them to go on and continue to reap a harvest of their desires and their idolatry and their sensuality. And what he is saying there, the judgment of God, the wrath of God is actually seen in God giving you what you want. And that's what he's talking about here. As he goes on and he says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for women exchange natural relations for those for that who is contrary. I want to read a translation here, the New American Standard. I think the King James says this. Listen to what, how different I think, because we can get caught up in desires. We can get caught up in the word passions and be thinking about this and, be, get, I think, come up in the wrong place. Because it says here, for natural relations. What it means, and there's nothing wrong with it, but I think with all the lust going on and the passions and the sensuality going on, we're focusing on those rather than what he's saying. Notice what the NASB, NASB says. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for, which, for that which is unnatural. It now becomes not passions, but natural order and natural function. And what was the function of the female body? Was to complement the male body, in the, in, in the grounds of marriage, in the institution all the way back to the beginning in the book of Genesis, what were they to do? Leave, cleave, and weave a new life. What they're doing is leaving but cleaving with the wrong people and weaving destruction. He says here, in the same way also men abandoned the natural function of their body, which was what? To complement the wife's body so that they could cleave. From a physiological perspective, we understand how that works. But when it doesn't go work, it is forced. It is unnatural. The relationship between a man's body and a man's body and a woman's body and a woman's body is unnatural. It is not in the order that God designed it to be. So they are homosexuality, lesbianism, these things are unnatural in their order. They are attacking not the natural passions, but the natural order of things. They are trying to undo what God created by following those desires of their heart. So by exchanging God, I can do with my body what I want to do with my body. 
And I can love anybody who I want to love because that's my natural desire. You see the difference between a natural desire and a natural function, completely different things. And so what they're doing in exchanging the order of creation and turning creation upside down because they've exchanged the weightiness of God in their life, they've, they've exchanged the truth of who God is for a lie. How this is seen out and played out is very important, and the reason I make that distinction again, I'm not going into same-sex marriage, I'm not going into all this stuff, but how you can see that if a person says, oh, wait a minute, I can understand, I can, I can explain this, why... Why same-sex marriages and why a person who has an attraction to the same sex is okay in the Bible? And this is why. Here's a man from Yale. He writes this. The person Paul condemns are manifestly not homosexual. What he is admonishing is, is are homosexual acts committed by apparently heterosexual persons. It is not clear that Paul distinguished his thoughts or rights between gay persons in the sense of permanent sexual preference and heterosexuals who simply engage in a periodical homosexual behavior. It is in fact unlikely that many Jews of his day recognized such a distinction, but it is quite apparent that whether or not he was aware of their existence, Paul did not discuss gay persons, but homosexual acts committed by heterosexual persons. Paul is speaking to those who violate their natural sexual orientation. You see why it's so important, not talking about natural passions, natural desires, but natural function and use, the King James says, natural use. He contends that those who go against their natural desire then should be understood as a personal nature of pagans. Since a homosexual natural desire is for the same sex, this does not apply to them. He has not chosen to set aside heterosexuality for homosexuality. The orientation he was born with is homosexuality. Demanding that he forsake his sin and become a heterosexual is actually the kind of violation that Paul is condemning. So that's why it's very important to hear the difference between natural use and the natural function versus the natural passions. Because what he says here is that this, that now he gives them dishonorable passion. God gives them up to those dishonorable passions. And what he is saying here is that because, I think because he goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, goes all the way back to the beginning of creation, goes all the way back to the first institution that he declares is marriage, is that, the, that marriage is an important and key institution of communities and society. That when people got married in a community, the entire community came because the entire community says, wow, we've got a new family. We've got a new addition going on in our culture. We are here to rejoice, to join them, to support them. But when you exchange the weightiness of God for a lie, Paul is saying, the reason why he is saying that he's picking out homosexuality and lesbianism first is because this is a sign that God has given them over in his wrath because they are now changing the order of community and culture and society. That's what I believe he brings those up first. Because he is saying, goes all the way back, this is so important to community and our life and our culture and humanity is that now he is saying, God's, God's wrath is now seen in that he is giving them over and we see now a heightened okay and a, and a heightened uh, activity in this kind of uh, 
lifestyle in our society because God's wrath is upon it. And he's talking about all cultures and talking about all societies, and we've seen it, that the Roman society and all kinds of them is that when there is promiscuity, when, when the, the uh, uh, society and the kingdom and the civilization starts imploding, you start seeing morality degrading and going downward. That's why I think he puts that up there. He is not picking on them, especially saying, wow, this is terrible. He is saying it's terrible, but he's not picking on them because homosexuals and people who are homosexuals don't go to hell because they're homosexuals. That's what he's saying. Don't focus on, like, uh, there was a church sign up when Katy Perry sang, I, I kissed a girl and I liked it, that they put up there, you kissed a girl and went to hell. That's not true. I could kiss a girl and go to hell. You could too. You could kiss a man and go to hell. It's not about homosexuality. It's not about heterosexuality. It's about exchanging a lot with a lie, the truth of God. It's about exchanging the weightiness of God. It's about taking God and just putting him down, putting him aside, putting him in a box, no longer glorifying him. So he says, for this reason, they exchange these natural relations for that which is contrary to nature. And likewise, men gave up their natural relations or their natural order or their natural use with women and were consumed with a passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they do not see fit or do not approve of having that knowledge of God, it doesn't fit their lifestyle. It doesn't fit their philosophy. It doesn't fit their worldview. So it can't fit. So what do you do? You get rid of it. You get rid of it in the schools. You get rid of it in the society. You get rid of it in the churches. You get rid of it in our government. That's what he's talking about here. Get rid of it. It doesn't fit. It's not that it's not true. It just doesn't fit the lie that you're now living with. <clears throat> and since they did not see that or prove the knowledge of God, God says, you don't want me, then you can have what you want. I won't protect you. He gave them up to their mind, which is debased, and to do what ought not to be done. And notice now he goes into 21 terrible things. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness because of their ungodliness. That's why he begins it this way. You are ungodly, therefore you are unrighteous. They were filled with envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, uh, maliciousness. They were gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Notice his folks, people who are disobedient to the parents. It's in the same list with homosexual offenders. He is saying, you can't escape humanity from the wrath of God. It's not about homosexualities. It's not about homosexual lifestyles. It's not about them at all. It's about your desire to do what you want to do and live the way you want to live and call what, you good being, what, you, what is evil good and what is good evil. Fools, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's a litany of unrighteousness which the wrath of God is saying, here it is, you've got it. It is because of things existing show that God is revealing his wrath by letting them do it and having an increase in their lives. That's what the wrath of God, how's God revealing it? By giving them over and letting them succeed and proliferate and propagate and fruitful in this kind of lifestyle. That's what, how God is revealing his wrath. Because of sin. And because he's a righteous God, there's judgment. And so the anger of God, the orge of God, the wrath of God, has to respond 
to evil because of his holiness. And that's how he is doing it now. But there will come a day of judgment, right? Because Jesus, when Jesus and John the Baptist saw the Pharisees coming for baptism, what did he say? Hey, who, wait a minute. Who told you guys about the wrath of God to come? Everybody knew about it. Everybody who knew the Bible talked about the wrath of God. They understood that there was going to be a judgment day. It's not to say that no one can change. I'm not saying that these people are being given over and their hearts are hard and they can't be saved. I'm not saying that at all. That's why he's saying he believes it is the power of God to salvation. That's why he wants to teach people because we do not know who God is going to call and who God is going to change. And God is going to give new life. So it's not about these people are foregone conclusions because you and I are in here. And do we suppress the truth? Yes. Do we listen to a lie? Yes. Even as believers. So we, don't, we can't puff ourselves up, right, folks? I hope we don't think so. And then the worst thing that's here, or the last thing that's pretty, pretty bad, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They know it, folks. They know it in their heart of hearts. They know that this is not right. But the more you suppress, the more desensitized you become. That not only do they do them, but he says you don't even have to do them. But the sadnesses and the wrath of God is upon those who approve of them doing that. That's what he's saying here. Notice he says, but they give their approval to those who practice them. So you don't need to be a homosexual, but you can be a heterosexual saying, go for it. And there are churches that are saying, go for it. Where is the weightiness of God there in that church? How can they open this book? Well, we know why. I just read you. It's not a thing to do about order. It has nothing to do about use. It has nothing to do about function. It's about their passions. And how do we violate people's passions? How do we want people, if they feel who they think they are, and how do we violate? Now, this is not heartless. This is a complex issue. How is the church supposed to minister to these people? It isn't with a hammer. Though God's going to bring a hammer someday to them, we lovingly explain to them, the grace and the mercy of who God is. And explain to them that this passage has nothing to do. Why? Because judgment came upon Noah and the ark. God, the judgment of God wiped out all people. And judgment came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because of their sexual immorality. Not because of lacking to show hospitality which is how they defy that. That's just how they define that God's wrath. God was angry with them because he did, they did not treat them as they should guess. And so God was angry with them, so they, weren't, they didn't treat them as, with great hospitality. It had nothing to do with sin. had nothing to do with immorality. had nothing to do with the sinful acts they wanted to do with the guests in Lot's house. So where does this take us? Well, this is why it is so heavy, folks. And that's why he is so rejoicing because we look at in verse 21 and we're going to keep on going back in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed, broken to history, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's where he's leading us to. That's why he's not ashamed of the gospel. That's why he believes in the power of God. Because the subject, the object of our faith is Jesus. For all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. We cannot glorify God in our lives if we do not glorify God. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and talks about that. That's, what, that's where he's taking us to. But we don't understand what great news is until we totally get the picture of what awful news is. And so we cannot, 
as I said last week, we cannot defang the gospel. Just don't put more teeth in it. Just don't sharpen them any sharper than they are. But in love, in patience, in kindness, let people know who Jesus is. It's God's work to lead them to himself. It's you and me to point people to Christ. But it's not for you and me to save anyone. So we can have our convictions about what we believe the Bible teaches. But we realize that there are people's lives in the mix of all that. That we don't, we don't judge them ahead of time. We don't persecute them ahead of time. We, don't, we aren't the wrath of, we're not the wrath of God. God's wrath is. So we need to be wise as serpents, uh, wise as serpents, but gentle as doves as we live our lives out in a world that has devalued God, that has called God weightless, that have exchanged the glory of God, the knowledge of God, because they don't approve of it. Our job is to be faithful, to be repentant when we exchange the glory of God for our own glory, or a lie, or an excuse. But that's why we have faith in the finished work of Christ that we cannot lose our salvation. That's what's so wonderful about the Bible. It tells us that we don't lose our salvation even when we do these things. But remember, again, very, very important, the end of verse 32 says this, Give approval to those who practice. You and I practice godliness in the midst of our ungodliness at times. You and I practice repentance when we find ourselves willfully disobeying God's law and God's word. When we do not look like Christ, but look like me and look like you. We don't practice these things. That's the difference. Why? Because God has poured his love into our hearts. Because now we rejoice in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ. We rejoice in the gospel. We rejoice in his love. And we rejoice that nothing can separate us from that. And that he who began that work in us will never, ever separate us. And will never end this work without making sure that he has completed it in us. That's the glory of the gospel. That's the, the comfort that we get from knowing Christ. But this is serious. This is weighty. This is big. This is, who, this is who we are. This is what people need to know who they are before they ever. Because if you just go to people and just saying, oh, God just loves you so much. God just loves you so much. He's got such a perfect plan for your life. He's not upset with you. He's not angry with you. He loves you so much. He can't be angry with you. Is that not a lie? Is that the gospel? It is not. This is the gospel. This is why we need to remind ourselves to have the confidence in the gospel and not try to change the gospel so that we try to get it in with people. Because we could lead people to worse conditions than they ever were, like the Pharisees. He says, you, you go over so many obstacles to make a convert, but then when you do Pharisees, you make them twice the child of hell. And we can do that. I've, been ta I've talked to people who have been lied to by pastors and who've been deceived by churches to think that they're okay with God no matter how they live their lives. May God forgive us, but may God give us the ability to love as God wants us to love in the way that he wants us to love with understanding all of this. So let's pray together. We are thankful, Father. We are thankful so much for this word that has not been created by man at all. No one can create this stuff. This is breathed out by you. It has been spoken to us for years and years and years. Millennium. 
This word is consistent from the beginning of Genesis to the end of the book of Revelation. It does not deviate. It is not, it is not contradictory. It's not saying that we don't understand everything in it. But Lord, our trust has to be in this word. Our trust has to be that you have given us everything we need for life and for godliness. And Lord, I pray that you would open up opportunities for us to be able to talk to those who have exchanged, who are living a lie. Pray that, Father, we would be people of light. Pray that we would be instruments of change in the hand of a gracious God this week. Pray for revival for Hope Church, for the reformation of lives that are here now. Pray, Father, that your spirit would work bigger than our circle, that you would work bigger than the, the, the sound of our voices from this church, that, Father, the footprint will be huge, that you will lead people to come to know Christ. You are, your arm is not short. It does not depend upon me or you or anyone. It depends upon you, Lord. We put our trust in you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.